You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. Each February for the past four years, the University of Missouri has coordinated a visual arts and design showcase, a venue for Mizzou undergraduate students to display and discuss their scholarly work in an exhibition setting. The showcase features the work of around 50 students from a variety of artistic disciplines, photojournalism, graphic design, painting, apparel, digital storytelling, to name but a few, and culminates in a keynote address given by a national leader in the field of art and design. The keynote address is held in Jesse Hall and is free and open not only to students, but also the community at large. I have been for the last two years and each time have left so incredibly inspired by the ideas that the speakers share. I wish more people would attend because the speakers are truly leaders in their fields. And this year's speaker, is no exception. Dr. Craig Wilkins is an architect, author and educator who explores the intersections of architecture, identity and justice. His work challenges common misconceptions about who is authorised to contribute, to access and to find joy in our built environment. In 2017, Dr. Wilkins was a recipient of the Smithsonian Cooper Hewitt Design National Design Award in the category of Design Mind an award given in recognition of a visionary who has had a profound impact on design theory, practice and public awareness. He is the award-winning author of The Aesthetics of Equity, Notes on Race, Space, Architecture and Music, was the winner of the 2015 Dear Architecture Ideas competition and his essays on social justice architecture are published around the world. For two decades, Dr. Wilkins has advocated that hip-hop culture offers fundamental architectural answers for restoring the viability and sustainability of marginalised communities, a way of building nurturing environments where African Americans can see a positive portrait of themselves. He currently serves on the faculty of the University of Michigan College of Architecture and Urban Planning, where he teaches courses on design and social justice. And he is also the visiting professor of practice in design for spatial justice and the Pietro Bellucci Distinguished Professor at the University of Oregon through this next semester. I feel incredibly honoured to be able to welcome Dr. Wilkins to Speaking of the Arts. Hello, Dr. Wilkins. Hello, how are you today? I am great. I'm so pleased you're here. Now, before we delve into the details, we should probably start with a broad definition of what is hip-hop architecture. <laughs> um, broad is probably the best way to, uh, to describe <laughs> it. Uh, it's a lot of things, but to be succinct, hip-hop architecture is hip-hop culture in built form. So the principles of hip hop culture that are channeled through its spatial understandings into a physical manifestation in architecture that responds to the erasure of identity and the presence of an oppressive power. So hip hop architecture is engaged in taking existing architectural processes and objects and transforming them 
into um, something that expresses the spatial practices specifically of the African-American community into something that makes sense for them. One of the easiest ways to get into it is to say that architecture, that hip hop architecture asks the question, where is the power for permanent change in architecture, in the built environment that can be used, that can be welled by uh, those who have typically been marginalized, whether physically, spatially, or uh, economically. So hip-hop architecture attempts to, to respond to these very specific pressures and, and create form or forms that respond to those, to sort of relieve or celebrate or support the aspirations of, of marginalized communities, specifically those communities of color. Is it important that we understand precisely what hip-hop music is to understand its reverberation on architecture? I think yes. I think there's been a, a conflation of the, the idea of hip-hop and rap. And rap is an element of hip-hop, for sure. Uh, but it is not all that hip hop is. Hip hop culture, it has uh, several elements. It has the graffiti elements, the, the writing elements. It has uh, an element of dance, which is consistently called b-boying or breakdancing. It has the MC, the, the rapper, and the DJ, who is the, the mu- who provides the music and the music production. So it's, it's all these things. And, and there's actually a fifth element as well, which is knowledge. Um, knowledge of self, knowledge of community, knowledge of history, knowledge of heritage, knowledge of importance. So it's, it's these five elements that come together to sort of create hip hop culture. Most of the time when folks speak about rap, I mean, or hip hop, they are focusing on one, which is the rap, which is a very huge and an important element, but it's not the only one. You talk about emceeing, DJing, tagging, teaching, and storytelling, and how they Mm -hmm. each reverberate into the built environment. How do each of those components translate into architectural speak? So let me, I can, this is an example I I typically give so that people can kind of understand how hip-hop culture can affect architecture in the built environment. First, we have to understand where hip-hop was born. Hip-hop was born in the Bronx in the 70s. At that time, the Bronx was really um, a severely disenfranchised and challenged neighborhood. Buildings were uh, falling down. There was very little investment going on. There were few jobs. The school system was not the best. Programs were being cut left and right. If you recall the presidential election uh, of 1980, Jimmy Carter. yeah, Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan both took a tour of the uh, Bronx neighborhood as kind of a photo op, uh, but also as kind of a representative of the of urban decay. Mm-hmm. So this is a community that was was challenged on a number of fronts, both educationally, financially, spatially, and so you have a, a bunch of fairly creative, articulate kids, as usually as kids are, who are interested in music, who are interested in their environment, who are interested in trying to live a life of joy in a space that is hostile to that. 
So you have students who, who you know, might want to play a musical instrument or would like to be musically inclined, uh, but their schools don't offer music classes anymore. You have students who are creatively inclined, who want to draw and sketch, and, but they don't have art classes anymore. But they live in a community that has uh, that's rich in other things. There's rich in, in sort of a musical history. There's also a, a richness in their visual history. And so they turn to those spaces, those places to fulfill their aspirations. So if you can't buy a musical instrument, you can't buy a trumpet. Uh, the school can't rent you a trumpet. You can't play a trumpet in, in your music class or band class anymore because it doesn't exist. Well, they turn to a place where they can play a trumpet. It's a different kind of trumpet because it's a trumpet that's on a record. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you loop that song long enough, you can play the music that you want. I mean, this is really very ingenious, but it's also embedded in the kinds of things that marginalized communities and especially African-American communities have to have to do all the time. They have to make do with the things that they have around them rather than actually going out and purchase things that support them. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's ingenious, but it's not unheard of within uh, the, this, this kind of community. So, so I just wanted to sort of lay that groundwork. So here's the, here's the interesting thing that, that myself and, and other folks who think about hip hop architecture find fascinating and find as sort of foundational in moving in a uh, sort of a hip hop architectural, hip hop architectural theory, thinking about how this might translate into the built environment. So how do you play this music? Right. Well, you normally you take an album, which is what was available at the time, although CDs were fast, fast growing and actually really replacing albums at the time. But you place it on a turntable. Right. Mm -hmm. And the turntable is a very passive instrument. You put you put the album down, you put the needle on the wax, you sit back and you listen to it. Uh, that's how it was designed to operate. But that's not going to give you the length of horn or the length of the bass line that you really need to sort of create the kind of music that you hear in your head. Well, these kids, and they were kids, would actively loop, move, scratch the album on the turntable so they would get the length and they would get the tenor and they would get the pitch that they wanted, that they would, again, that they were hearing in their heads. So they turned a, a turntable, which was fast becoming obsolete, from a passive instrument to an active instrument. It, it, they used it in the exact opposite way in which it was designed to be used. Right. So they, they took something that was disposable and turned it into something that was indispensable for creating the music. And so one of the things that we find interesting, myself and other folks who think about uh, architecture and, and certainly hip hop architecture is how do we take things that have been disposed of, who, who seem to have run the end of their life cycle and use them in ways in which they weren't designed to be used? And so that, that's, a, that's one of the, I think, sort of the easiest ways to sort of understand how hip hop, how hip hop is informing architectural theory and, and the creation of spaces that reflect a different kind of culture. Let's talk a little bit about Detroit, where you've lived and, and worked, where you say there's this awesome opportunity. There's so much empty land there that could be well used. 
Uh, how are city planners and urban designers in Detroit responding to uh, your work and the idea of hip hop architecture and the opportunity that exists? Well, um, those are two different questions. <laughs> the, the, how, I, the first one I can answer easy, quickly, is that whether how they're responding to my work. They're not. I mean, there are lots of players in Detroit, and there are lots of players in the urban environment, and and to a certain degree, the uh, municipalities just want something that works. They want something that they can that that sort of eases the the pressures of the residents, that supports healthy living, that supports economic growth. The form of it, in a sense, to municipalities, to mayors, to planners, um, and I don't want to indict all mayors and all planners, but just in general, is less important than its viability, sustainability, and the benefits, the economic benefits, and in some ways the social benefits, but mostly the economic benefits are translated into the, the coffers of the city so they can do their job. Right. So I don't want to say that I, the, the kind of the thinking that I'm, I'm putting forth is ignored. It's just one of a lot of a lot of things on the menu that cities have to sort of engage. So when you look around the country, tell me some of the architectural projects where you see promise and hope, where your ideas have been translated into reality, into living spaces that people can use and occupy and live in. Well, again, I, I'm one of many, well, one of a few who right. are moving, who are thinking about architecture in this manner. There's a gentleman named Sekou Cook, who is finishing a book on hip hop architecture. He's doing work in, in Syracuse. There's a James Garrett Jr., who is also a principal at Formula Architecture in uh, Minneapolis, and much of his work embodies elements of of hip-hop architecture there are other folks around there are artists who are who are thinking about space and thinking about the ways in which people of color inhabit their their environment and trying to support so i'm, I'm not the only one as a matter of fact i might not even be the most uh, prolific one so I, I just wanted to make that clear now going to the idea of where some of these things are occurring it is it's it's sort of difficult to to identify a building or place that is primarily in and of hip-hop architecture yeah one of the things that we are trying to do is trying to sort of shake the sort of architectural tree in some way the, the production of architecture tree which has always been embedded in for lack of a better term, a patronage model of practice that someone has to come to you, they have to come to you with a project, mm. they have to come to you with a program, and they have to come to you with money. And so that's that's sort of been the traditional way in which architecture has been practiced. It's still practiced primarily that way. So to create, I guess, a fully formed uh, building or space that reflects uh, a hip hop architectural model, there has to be a client. There has to right. be someone who is willing to not only uh, embrace your ideas, but also willing to pay to have those ideas expressed in a, in a physical manner. So what most people who are interested in, in pursuing the idea of hip hop architecture 
are doing is that they are folding a lot of the ideas of architecture or hip hop architecture into projects that they are already working on or projects that are in the pipeline. But to say that building says hip hop architecture, that's a few years away. I, I think there's some momentum behind um, these, these, um, this, this conversation and, and, and th th something's gonna break. Something's gonna break fairly soon. I've had real estate developers call me and say, hey, can you tell me a little bit more about this hip hop architecture stuff? What does it look like? And that's, I, I refuse to talk to them about it because A, clearly it's, it's something that they feel they can commodify. They right. can turn into a product. And that is the absolute opposite of what hip hop architecture is. It's about trying to empower people on their own, not to you know be swallowed by some real estate conglomerate that they can sell as new and hip and now. Right. Um, but so so people are hearing, you know, we'll, we'll see where what happens. One thing I'm curious about, I read that you'd gone back to grad school. You were working as an architect, then you went back to grad school. It was 1992 because mm -hmm. you saw this disconnect between you, where you worked and where you lived. And I'm thinking, you know, in 1992, today, only 3% of working architects are African-American. So in 1992, there must have been even less. You're in a very white profession, in a very white school with a lot of other people who who haven't seen that disconnect did you learn anything in grad school was it worth it or you, you already knew what you needed to do I'm just I'm always well, curious about education and like sometimes I think we learn more just by doing it ourselves yes I will first let me preface this by saying I will never ever ever suggest that anyone go get a PhD I will never <laughs> However, I will never talk anyone out of getting a PhD. I just, I just won't suggest that you do that. So uh, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. So for the first two years of my, my um, doctoral studies, at the end of every quarter, I sat in my grad advisor's office going, what am I doing here, man? This, this, I don't, none of this, none of this, this, these conversations about these dead French philosophers, right. anything to do with the, the brother on the corner. They have nothing to do with that. But eventually, and he would talk me down, he talked me off the ledge and I would take my classes next semester. And eventually it all comes together. The work of Michel Deserteau, the work of Henri Lefebvre about the production of space and, and the ways in which uh, people use them and the way in which space is used against folks. All of this came together for me, but it was a struggle. It was, a, it was an absolute struggle for me. And yes, most of the, my uh, colleagues who were in architecture, both black and white, just didn't understand why I was there. So you have your, you have your license, you have your degree. What are you doing? <laughs> so, I need to understand this. And there's, uh, at the time, I didn't know that anybody else was thinking about this, these ideas. So I had to go somewhere where thinking was allowed. That's why I pursued my doctorate degree. I read your wrapped architecture paper. What you're saying is so outside of what people are thinking about like what was the reception like for that paper was it crickets or <laughs> did people take uh, notes? Uh, crickets uh for the <laughs> most part except except when that when that piece was published like a lot of the folks that i just mentioned you know james and Sekiu and amanda and some other folks who are i don't want to say on board because they're more than on board this is sort of that this is what they think about daily 
uh, a lot of them tell me that that essay mm -hmm. either confirmed what they were thinking or introduced them into thinking differently. So in that sense, I, I'm, I'm very happy that it was out and it was published. But yes, when it was released, it was like, mm, okay, well, whatever, what's next? But, it, you know, I, I was clearly working out some ideas and some issues, and I've continued to do that. And I'm, I'm much more hopeful that something is, is going to break. At the time, it was really sort of an external speculation on something that I really didn't fully understand. And, and now I think I do. One of the parallels you made, which which kind of hit home for me, was you talked about the idea of you know proper architecture and and how we say well it's not proper English, which you know I'm guilty of saying all the time in America, um, but that that you know language and architecture flows, nothing is static, but we have this idea of what is proper, and then that's all built into building codes. So if you're an engineer or a plumber or whatever it is, there are only certain things you can do because the book mm -hmm. says you can only do those certain things. So you're fighting against the rules the whole time no you're you're absolutely right it is um i mean if you're if you're talking about a different kind of model from a traditional model of production of architecture or production of anything there it, there isn't just the rules there are the unwritten rules there are also the 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 sort of the educational process that that introduces people to the rules so it's not just changing the rules you're changing an entire system of production and it's not easy it will you know it takes time which is why again when when folks want to say well show me where hip-hop architecture exists i'm not so much in a rush simply because i know it's going to take some time but also i'm not so much in a rush to point to something because that relieves you of the the responsibility to think about what I'm saying. Right. You can now just look at the object and go, yeah, I see it. No, I don't see it. And then move on to something else without understanding, you know, why it looks the way it looks. You just want to see something that, that you imagine in your head, but it is. And I'm not willing to let people off the hook. Uh, that's just not what I, I want to do. So, and I will respond to that always. Like, what does hip hop architecture look like? I say, well, okay, sit down and let me tell you about where it comes from first. Right. And then, then you can start, start talking about, well, maybe I see some of that here, or maybe I see some of that there, but I'm not going to let you off the hook. So one of the things that we, this small group of folks that I mentioned, you know, we, we talk about architecture as a verb, not necessarily mm -hmm. as an object. It's a, it's, as much a process as it is a product and if it doesn't if the product doesn't come through that process it's not hip-hop architecture it might be something it might be something else but it's not hip-hop architecture the profession itself i mean you've talked about how three percent of architects working in america today are black and it's a very it's a very white dominated profession and so getting ideas across when you've got this hegemonic group of people it must be difficult. How how can we get more young people of color to be architects into the profession? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I shamelessly left out another gentleman whose work is really fairly important in this as well. His name is Michael Ford, and he has a, a series of hip hop architectural camps, and they've been going on for several years. And he takes uh, young students of color 
folks who have been historically marginalized or overlooked in the the architectural profession. And so he starts very young. He starts with, you know, seventh and eighth graders and high school students, introducing them to the principles and possibilities of architecture and a career in, in architecture in the built form. I used to run a program in Detroit for about eight years that was focused on specifically high school students, juniors and seniors, to uh, introduce them to architecture specifically, but design in general as a, as a possible career choice. The National Organization of Minority Architects has a pipeline program that um, they operate year-round that also uh, addresses the, the ability or the, even the knowledge of architecture as a career choice for uh, students of color. I think the American Institute of Architects also does something similar as well, but I'm, I'm, not, that, I'm not quite sure about that. So there are efforts to increase the number of African Americans, Latino Americans in the field of architecture, and it, it just it just sim- it simply has to happen. So those things are going on. But uh, but I also wanted to kind of circle back to Mike Ford and our earlier conversation about where can you see um, mm. the embodiment of hip hop architecture. Mike Ford is working with an, an organization called the Universal Hip Hop Museum. Mm-hmm. And they are uh, establishing the first you know, museum for hip hop culture in the world. And he's got, there's some really pretty big heavy hitters that are, are participating in this project, uh, one of which is um, Shantae and uh, who's, oh, oh, Curtis Blow. Ice T. Yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> a bunch of people who are involved in this project. And so he's, he's the lead designer for this museum. So pretty soon we might not have to say, oh, it's coming. We might be able to point to as this as, all right, this is maybe the first or at least one of the first embodiments of all the principles of hip hop architecture. The one question I wanted to ask you before we close is, you wrote that traveling for you makes the world real and to be taken out of your element and have to negotiate other cultures and other people and other spatial relationships is for you truly fascinating, which I concur with. So I'm curious as you've traveled through other global cultures, where do you think we get it the most right? Uh, the most right. That's that's an interesting. <laughs> the least wrong. <laughs> the least wrong. Um, well, I'll will t- tell you some places that I truly, yeah, I, I really I find fascinating that I, I could I could return to again and again and again. Uh, so I, I I find, and this is these are not going to be places that uh, a lot of people are going to uh, want to travel. Like I, I find the favelas of Brazil absolutely engaging and fascinating. And again, I'm not so much interested in, well, let me put it this way, because I don't want to be misconstrued. I am probably as much interested in form making as, as other folks. But I'm much more interested in the way in which forms are informed, for lack of a better term. So the way people inhabit their space, the way they use it, the manner in which they respond, that, that to me is worth the, the, the effort to understand, 
to engage, to experience, and to explore. And I find the communities that are in a way not so planned, not so pre-planned, not top-down organized locations, much more interesting and educational for me as an architect than let's say a city that has been totally designed from scratch with grids and some sort of overall perspective of how people should live. Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in how people do live and trying to support that, um, trying to add that to my toolkit so that the next time I come across another community that has similar issues or concerns, we can talk about the ways in which other places have solved those kinds of issues rather than trying to slap down a cookie cutter response to something that is really very locally specific. So Brazil is always fascinating to me. Ghana, Accra is a fascinating place for me to visit. There are places in the Cape Coast that I enjoy. I don't know if I'm answering your question because I'm not really talking <laughs> about the way and the way in which we get it right. It's just what's much more interesting to me is the way in which people themselves get it right and what we can learn from that. My guest today has been Dr. Craig Wilkins, architect, educator, and author. Dr. Wilkins will be the keynote speaker at the University of Missouri's Visual Arts and Design Showcase, where he'll be talking about hip-hop architecture and the artist as a public intellectual, and the responsibility of all artists to be at the table when we discuss what is important in our society. Dr. Wilkins' keynote speech will be at Jesse Hall on Wednesday, February the 12th, tickets for which are totally free of charge. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilkins. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I have enjoyed this uh, immensely. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. We are a town that is often divided in two. There are the myriad arts events that happen in the community and as many events again that happen on campus. And although a crossover between the two seems like it would be such a natural thing in a city of our size, I've always been surprised at how most of us are either town or gown, but rarely both. Which is a huge shame, as I would love to see more young arts makers involved with city arts organizations, and I wish more community people knew about the incredible events that happen on campus. Of course, we have an embarrassment of riches in Colombia when it comes to the arts, and it is impossible to do it all. This coming Monday, Mizzou's annual Visual Arts and Design Showcase is back for its fifth year at Jesse Hall, an exhibit of works in multiple genres created by the university's undergraduate students who are studying a variety of arts disciplines and some who aren't studying the arts at all. The showcase culminates on February the 12th with a keynote speech by my first guest on today's show, Dr. Craig Wilkins. As well as bringing Dr. Wilkins to Columbia, the organising committee flies in professional artists from different disciplines for a panel discussion and also to choose the award winners. The students' portfolios are all displayed in the Jesse Hall Rotunda for two weeks and it is both fascinating and inspiring to see the work being created by the arts professionals of tomorrow. 
This week we are dedicating the whole show to the Visual Arts and Design Showcase and so I am thrilled to welcome to the second act of today's show Assistant Professor of Film Studies and Digital Storytelling, Christian Rosier and three of this year's showcase artists, Jessica Tiffes, Alex Sapau and Tyree Taylor. Hello everybody and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Hello. Hello. I hope I didn't massacre anybody's name. I hope I got them all right. <laughs> Always a bit of a danger zone. <laughs> so Christian, the Undergraduate Visual Arts and Design Showcase this is now in its fifth year. Tell us a little yes. bit more about what exactly it is and what the impetus was for creating this annual event. The Visual Art and Design Showcase is really a demonstration of Mizzou's commitment to fostering the arts across the campus. We have representation in the showcase from students in architecture, painting, photography, as well as various motion picture disciplines including uh, documentary journalism, film studies, and digital storytelling, floral design, costuming. It's an incredibly comprehensive platform for all of the students involved in creative practice to exhibit their work for the community, for um, their fellow students. And why did it get started? Like, How did it all begin? That's a very good question. Linda Blockus, the um, chair of undergraduate studies, is really the the brain trust behind mm -hmm. the visual art and design showcase. She leads the committee, and it is truly uh, her vision and the collective vision of the committee that approached arts and sciences, approached the campus leadership, and made sure that the commitment to the arts that was being pledged truly manifested in an annual event that was well-funded, highly publicized, and that truly provided a platform for undergraduate students and their work. I mean, it's clearly a success. It's now in its fifth year. Yes, it is. What kind of opportunities does the showcase open up for students that take part? Oh my goodness, so many. And largely that's a function of the support of the Columbia community. First of all, every student who is selected for participation in the showcase has the opportunity to have a conversation with a panel of jurists who travel from all corners of the country each year an impressive collection of uh, artists in various disciplines to come and give very specific critique and feedback to each participant in the showcase. To me that's one of the most profound benefits that our students receive is this instruction and then experience in speaking about their work mm. with other professionals. Secondly, Arts and Science has very generously provided $8,000 in award funds for a selection of students who win the top prizes, as I selected by the jury. I think you have $2,000, two $2,000 prizes yes. for artistic expression and applied design. Is That's that right. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yes. And then $1,000 prizes too, which is a huge amount of money when yes. you're an undergraduate student. An enormous amount of money, which we expect the award winners to use to further their creative pursuits. Thirdly, we have a number of Columbia institutions, including Sager Broadus Gallery, Ragtag Cinema, and lots of other fabulous sponsors who will be doing their own selections of winners and providing them with gallery exhibition opportunities, Ragtag screenings. It's really a, a multi-layered opportunity for the Mizzou undergraduate community. 
That was so exciting last year. I mean, there are two award ceremonies. You have the award ceremony where you give out the awards as decided by the professional jurors that fly in. And then you have a second award ceremony, I think I'm right, in where you have the community awards. So yes. then you have the chances, say, like you said, Sega Browdis Gallery, Ragtag, mm-hmm. there's a host of other people too, where you get chances to then be seen and promoted by uh, those organisations within the community. And that was really exciting. The yeah. second award ceremony was my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too, yeah. <laughs> so this year the showcase includes work by 37 students, including works from, like you say, photojournalism, graphic design, architectural drawing, theatre set design, painting, sculpting, textile and apparel design, etc, etc. Not all of them are necessarily students of those subjects. They may be from different disciplines. Yes. Um, you started off with 80 entries, I believe, this year. How do you pare that down to less than half? It's a rigorous process. <laughs> <laughs> Were you involved with that? Yes, yes. For the past three years, I've been involved in selection of the video, which includes documentary journalism, film studies, and digital storytelling entries, as well as the photography entries. And so the way that works is that a committee of faculty members review all the work. And then we, uh, we have a, um, a protracted meeting in which we discuss the merits of each and, and, and curate, curate a show based around that. And uh, I have to say that this year, as, as every year, there's really just an ab- abundance of amazing work being produced here on campus. Um, and there's always a bit of heartbreak because mm. we always wish that we could include more. And yet the showcase is the showcase. And this is part of, this is part of the experience that we aim to provide for the students is, you know, is a real world right. um, juried exhibition. And that means selecting. And, uh, and so we, we, we curate a show based around themes and content and quality. And, uh, you know, we aim to provide something that um, highlights the best of uh, what students have produced this year, an exhibition that um, the entire campus can be truly proud of. Let me turn to the three student artists who are here today. Photographer and filmmaker Jessica Tiffes, painter and sculptor Alex Sapau, and artist-scientist Tyree Taylor. Jessica, let's start with you. You are majoring in digital storytelling with a minor in journalism. What kind of stories do you want to tell? That's a really good question. So I get this a lot, actually, and I think, like, growing up, I've never really seen myself in, like, stories or seen my friends, and, like, when I do see that, it's usually negative, and I just always hated that. And, like, I want to tell stories of people who look like me, people who may not have had the voice or the platform to tell their own stories and, like, show that we are successful people, we are amazing people, we are creative, just like anyone else, and we deserve our stories to be told. So anyone who's ever felt like their stories weren't told, I want to tell their stories. You've said, I read online, that you want to be the first female Nigerian director of an ESPN 30 for 30 (laughs) film, which I had to look up what that was, and then I'm like, how do I not know about this? An incredible set of three series of documentaries, each with 30 films in it, all sports documentaries. Tell me why you love sports documentaries, and what will be your first film? I think I've always grown up with sports since I have so many brothers and there's just like a feeling of watching a team play and feeling like I could be on the team even though I'm not athletic at all (laughs) and just getting like really excited like when my favorite team um, wins or like when they have the craziest success story or like they're the underdogs and like win a game so I think it's just something exciting and a lot of times 
um i feel like sports brings a lot of people together and that's the coolest thing ever so i would want to like make a documentary that everyone can watch like kids older people it doesn't matter and my first story um i hope no one takes this idea but (laughs) (laughs) um i would like to go back to my hometown a leaf texas and there's just like a lot of sports talent there and like we've had a lot of successful stories so i would want to like document that and tell people like how crazy successful like my school district is and yeah again i hope no one steals that idea (laughs) i don't think anyone's listening in that town so you're probably okay (laughs) (laughs) then when the podcast goes up maybe it'll get taken so you say you're you you are a nigerian american do you see your future being in the american film industry i mean the the nollywood film industry of of lagos and nigeria is huge it's second only to bollywood i mean so do you think you've got a future back in nigeria too as a filmmaker that's a really good question. I've never <laughs> thought about that. Honestly, as of right now, I haven't really considered that, but like I am willing to keep my options open. I kind of see myself being an American filmmaker though, but showing my ties to Nigeria because I am very proud of my heritage and all of that. So yeah. Tyree, you are a man after my own heart as you straddle a zone between the arts and the sciences, which I think is such a fascinating area. What kind of arts meets science projects have you seen that have really inspired your work? I have to say in high school, what got me really inspired, even though I'm not studying like stem cells or anything, it was an arm that they had spray painted stem cells on and the stem cells were able to regenerate into skin and the arm itself was really cool it looked like something right out of like anime and you could use it bluetooth somehow they connected it to your nervous system and so just since then like i've always thought of it was really cool the i guess intersection between art and medicine and i also heard of like art therapy and I find myself when I mix paint sometimes that it is really kind of like, oh man, this feels good. And you are a health sciences major, right? You're not an art major. Um, I are you am, both? I'm digital storytelling and psychology. There are some amazing people that are working in that medical, biological arts and science. There is a glass sculptor in the UK called Luke Jerram who makes these stunning glass sculptures of viruses. So, you know, they're mm-hmm. so tiny that you know, we can't really see, but the, the surface of a virus is so beautiful. It's mm-hmm. so interesting. And each one is different, how it bonds onto other cells. So the HIV virus, Ebola, they're all different. And he makes these, I don't know, like two foot by three foot glass sculptures that are all underlit with this incredible surface texture of viruses. Oh my um, there's a, a professor called Dr. Dinah Taimina who, um, she's a physicist and she crocheted hyperbolic space. So hyperbolic space, people said, you can't model hyperbolic space. And she said, sure I can, and she crocheted it. <laughs> there are just incredible stories in the world of arts and science. So um, I'm, I'm interested to see what, what you do with your arts and science. You mainly do, you mainly paint. Tell us a little bit about your work. I guess my work tends to be really personal. A lot of times I I find myself drawing inspiration from music and the classical paintings that I uh, grew up seeing in museums. I I guess specifically for the showcase, I I really like the Madonna and uh, this statue called Wing Victory is Nike, Mm. uh, the the goddess of victory, Nike. And uh, those really made a big impact on me as a kid. And I tried to put my own spin on those, I guess. Mm. And I, I use oil paints a lot now. 
I didn't really know about oil paints until I got to college and my teacher Nathan Boyer really made me uh, appreciate mm. uh, oil paints and color. Mm-hmm. Like, I used a lot of black and white pencil before mm-hmm. then. The science of color is another whole thing. I could do a whole series of shows on this. Really soon. <laughs> Alex, you are a passionate vegan. And Dr. Craig Wilkins was talking about how when he's here, he's going to talk about the artist as a public intellectual and how we should all be at the table and use our art to inform the community. So talk about your work and how you use it for your own activism. I think that I use my work for activism as a way to create a dialogue for people. I never want my work to make people feel like I'm attacking them, but more like inviting them, I guess. And especially recently, I've tried to see my work as a celebration of animals and compassion. So mostly as like a way to open up a dialogue and get people thinking. Tell us about your Grazer series. My Grazer series is my most recent series. and. It's a collection of floral animal portraits that I'm doing, these like floral animal hybrids, kind of. And I've cut them out from their background. That way they can be pasted up anywhere like stickers to show that animals can kind of exist outside of our confines and hopefully be seen as something more than just a food source. So they're all just made out of flowers and mushrooms and a bunch of things like that. One of the challenges, I think, for artists is that there's often an artistic distance between what you create that feeds your family and what you create that feeds your soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, being seen and selling are, are often different things. But looking at your online portfolio, it seems like you've kind of thought that through. Tell me, tell me what you think about that distance between those two bodies of work. Well, I do. I still do commission work, so people will hire me, and I'll do portraits or you know album covers, things like that. But ultimately, I I guess I just really want to be happy. I know that sounds cheesy, but I just have to stay true to what I want to make. So it, it's really easy, I guess, because I'm just like those are my ideas that come naturally to me. So I just like stick to what. It's coming from my heart. But I mean, you have some, your work is beautiful. I mean, and you work in sculpture and photography and you paint and color pencil and all sorts of things. So some of your works are really beautiful. They're just beautiful works of art that you would want to buy and put on your wall. And then you have another series of works where you kind of sculptures of hamburger buns with like a dead chicken inside, which, you know, are your statement pieces. So it's like harder to buy those. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You seem to have those two bodies of work already. Yeah, that's kind of like, those works of art I've definitely realized, like, this isn't going to be something that somebody's going to buy and put in their home in any sort of way. It's not going to be in their kitchen. But it's still, I feel like, important work to make. And I guess my intention for that work is maybe um, it would end up in a gallery collection or something like that. But. I've definitely started to realize that I want to make work that is kind of less against things and more like in support of things that I care about. So that's kind of where the shift has come from with my like more gory sculptures to like these beautiful floral chickens. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of chicken artwork. <laughs> I, I have chickens, so oh, yeah, yes. I love chicken artwork. Jessica, tell us what we will see in the showcase in your portfolio. Cage Birds is a photo series that's inspired by American conceptual artist Barbara Kruger, and it's basically my take on her work, and I'm kind of remixing it in the digital age, and it has some of my coolest friends on campus, and it's really interesting to see because 
they're making bold statements and I think everyone should come out. They're making bold statements about what? About just like not being society's cage birds. And there's like <sighs> titles that I feel like our oppressors put on us and unwillingly we feel like we have to go against the grain and prove that. But I feel like it's not that we have to prove it, but more of just like, no, you know what I mean? If that makes sense. <laughs> it's like, I'm not trying to like, like what she said, I'm not trying to like argue with anything or I don't want my friends to like have to make bold, um, aggressive standpoints. I just want us to all realize that we don't have to be those things and Step out from the Instagram world. Exactly, and exactly. <laughs> Go old school. Mm. Tyree, what is in your portfolio at the show? In my portfolio at this show, I have a painting, I guess two paintings, of two of my favorite music artists as marble statues. They're cracked to represent that. Um, I notice that sometimes a lot of artists can be worshipped or like overly uh, fantasized and that when they're cracked, it kind of shows a impermanence mm -hmm. and just kind of that there's more to them. That means they're not permanent, so they won't be there forever and they're kind of not mm -hmm. this big thing that we make them all the time. Who are your two favorite music stars? At the moment when I was making it, <laughs> it was Beyonce and Travis Scott. Has it changed since then? Will there be another series with a different set of artists, <laughs> musicians? There will be, this series will be continued past the show and I'll have way more music artists. This is only, I guess, a small taste into my mm -hmm. music taste. Um, I feel like my music taste is kind of broad and what inspires me, I wasn't able to get everything into the I guess the show to what you can see. Right. Alex, you said your Grazer series is your most recent work. Is that what we'll see in the show? Or have you got another body of work for the showcase? In the show, it will be my Grazer pieces. Okay. Yeah. And how long did you have each for, to put this all this work together? When I mean, you submitted an entry to be considered by the jurors. Was that piece that you submitted for the jurors indicative of the portfolios you would represent or were you supposed to go away and do something completely different? To my understanding, you're supposed to submit the work that will be in the show. Okay. So it's an ongoing series, so I submitted all the pieces I had, had done, but I've been working on the series for about a year, so I'm just selecting like four of them from the series to put in the show. Okay. <laughs> Christian, as well as teaching, you are also an experienced filmmaker. Your yes. most recent film, Apache Leap, is coming out sometime, hopefully, this year, and that is a narrative yes. film. That's right. You've worked around the world making award-winning documentary and narrative films, and now you're working with tomorrow's filmmakers. Yes. What do you wish you'd known in college? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> All of it. Yeah. Uh, I had the advantage and disadvantage of going to a school for undergrad that um, did not have a formal film program. And so myself and a few friends got our hands on a, an old um, Bolex 8mm black and white film camera and um, just started figuring it out. And that was, that was an incredibly valuable experience. But um, what I perceive as my mission at Mizzou is to make sure that each student who graduates with a degree in digital storytelling, film studies, does so with a degree of confidence about what their next career step is mm. after they walk across the stage. When I first arrived, I, um, I met a, 
a room full of graduating seniors in a film major, and many of them were, they were absolutely terrified. They were, they were terrified, which is not unreasonable. It's one of those career trajectories that doesn't have the clearest of steps laid out. And I had a, an epiphany in that moment, in that first conversation, that um, this is what I can contribute to the University of Missouri community regarding the arts. And the reason why I'm involved with the Visual Art and Design Showcase is because I feel that this opportunity is absolutely in alignment with my own personal mission here, which is to help empower students, help prepare them more thoroughly for their life and career in the arts after they leave these hallowed halls mm. and into the next step of their lives. Do you three feel prepared for what is next? <laughs> I feel prepared. <laughs> um, I'd I say I feel prepared in the arts aspect. I kind of feel prepared. I feel like since I'm a junior, that like I don't need to know exactly, mm -hmm. but like the fact that there are professors like Christian and just like so many other people that genuinely care about us, that makes me okay with not knowing right now, but knowing eventually. Before we finish, Christian, give us a quick rundown of what's happening over the next two weeks. It opens on February the 3rd, is the, Monday is when it, the displays go up, I think, in Jesse Hall. Yes. And there's a series of evening events. There is. On Monday, February 3rd, there is a, um, a film screening of all of the documentary journalism, film studies, and digital storytelling offerings this year. That's 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. in Jesse Hall. It's absolutely open to the public. Definitely come out. Again, that's Monday, February 3rd. On Wednesday, February 5th, 5 p.m., there's a panel dialogue with jurors. And 6 to 7 p.m., Wednesday, February 5th, there's the award ceremony. Okay. Where all the huge prizes get give, given out. <laughs> it's going to be an amazing, amazing event. All of those things are happening in Jesse Hall. Wednesday, February 12th. We have our keynote speaker at 5 p.m. That's, again, Dr. Craig Wilkins. And the community award ceremony immediately follows that, 6.30 to 7 p.m. Now, I have to remind everyone, when you come out, and we are so excited to see all of you here, because we have an amazing collection of work, an amazing uh, program of wonderful films and great speakers. When we see you, make sure to use the following hashtag in all your documentation. It's M-I-Z-V-A-D-20. Okay, M-I-Z-V-A-D-20. You got it. Hashtag, all right. <laughs> That's right. Thank you so much. My second act guest today being Christian Rosier, Assistant Professor of Film Studies and Digital Storytelling, along with artists Jessica Tiffes, Tyree Taylor, and Alex Sapau. You can see their work and that of another 34 students in the Jesse Hall Rotunda starting next Monday and running for two weeks. The keynote speech by Dr. Craig Wilkins, hip-hop architect, author, and educator, will be on Wednesday, February the 12th at 5 p.m. And I know it will be inspirational. Thank you all so much.
Thank you. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and I'm Diana Moxon. As usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Colombia. This evening, the Columbia Art League has an opening reception for the first show in their new South Gallery. It's called Phoneme, a collaboration, and it features the artworks of Matt Ballou and Joel T. Duggan. The reception is from 5 till 7 this evening and is free and open to all. In Jefferson City, this is the second and final weekend for Scene One Theatre's production of the play Other Desert Cities. Evening showtime is 7.30 and tickets are $15. And at Rose Music Hall tonight, progressive jazz rock band from Chicago, Marvin, are on stage with Columbia's own mobile funk unit. The show starts at 9pm and $8 gets you into a great show. Tomorrow morning, the brand new Sinkfelt Music Centre, Mizzou's new school of music building, has its official opening at 10am with speeches and a performance by Mizzou Brass. And then there are public tours from 11 till noon. At the Boone History and Culture Centre's Mont Mini Gallery, a new art show opens tomorrow entitled Breaking Patterns, which features work by female artists from the MU School of Visual Studies. The Mont Mini Gallery is open 10 till 5 on Saturday and 12 till 5 on Sunday, and the official opening reception for that event will be on February the 15th. And at the Missouri United Methodist Church, a rising star of concert organists, Tyler Bomer, is in concert at 7pm and tickets are $10. Sunday afternoon is, of course, the Super Bowl with the Kansas City Chiefs facing off against the San Francisco 49ers. But for anyone who isn't going to be glued to the Chiefs, first return to the Super Bowl in 50 years or at a festive pre-party, then here are a couple of options. The Missouri River Cultural Conservancy will be at Cooper's Landing for a special winter recording session featuring the Daves. That's from 1 till 5. And at Ragtag, there's rescheduled winter afternoon membership mixer with snacks, drinks and surprises is from 2.30 till 3.30. Ragtag Cinema will be celebrating Black History Month with a series of films under the umbrella of Black Independence. The first of the month's four films is the 1978 cinema verite film Killer of Sheep by director Charles Burnett, which will be shown next Tuesday and Thursday. Wednesday evening, National Book Award finalist and fiction writer Kali Fajardo Anstein might have said that wrong, is giving a reading of her work at the Jane Froman Studio in Columbia College's Dorsey Hall. Her talk is at 7pm. Next Thursday is a really busy night, so here are a slew of arts options for you. It is opening night at Stevens College Playhouse for their production of the Jane Austen romantic comedy, Pride and Prejudice. Um, The show continues through next weekend with evening showtimes at 7.30 and tickets cost $16. The University Concert Series and the Missouri Symphony Orchestra present the Aeolus Quartet in concert at the Missouri Theatre. That concert starts at 7pm and tickets cost from $28. The first Blind Boon Piano Concert series of the year will be in the Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre next Thursday featuring singers Rochelle Knight and Lamont Walker. Their concert starts at 7 and tickets are $20. In Jefferson City, Capital City Productions will have its first mini production in its brand new home on Wicker Lane. They're doing the two-person musical I Do, I Do and it'll be on from the 6th to the 8th with all ticket sales going to their fundraising campaign. Tickets are $15 and the showtime is 7.30. And finally, at Rosa Music Hall, you can hear Dylan LeBlanc with Marcella's Ghost at 8 p.m. next Thursday. Thank you so much for listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagen. We'll be back next week with more arts chat and sneaky peeks behind the Mid-Missouri Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.